All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we're going to be talking to you about some news in the bioethics arena. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked about issues related to the art of being human. Well, I mean, food is related to the art of being human. So our food news was was definitely on brand. (laughs) That is very true. Very true. So specifically about bioethics, it's been a long time. Maybe more clearly related to the art of being human. (laughs) So we thought we would just find some recent news in that world and and discuss it. But before we do that, we do want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon sponsors, Will and Teresa. Yay, thank you so much. They are supporters of our, supporters of our podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash VPN, and recently signed up to be monthly patrons. and Already at, very loyal listeners. We appreciate you guys so much. At their giving level, they are on track to receive a batch of my world famous chocolate chip cookies famous world famous for so sure. will and Teresa, thank you so much for your support and just be on the lookout for when the postal man comes because he might be bearing a gift of goodies okay so bioethics news today sally we have three articles to talk about i think we should talk about this first one it's an article in the new york times and it is a book review the book that is being reviewed is called the first cell and, and sally do you have the subtitle in front of you Yes, it's and the human costs of pursuing cancer to the last. Perfect. So the author of the book is an oncologist and the reviewer is a neurosurgeon who has worked closely with oncologists. But and the the author Azra Raza is talking about when should we stop cancer treatments? Now, when I wanna, is enough enough? I want to be clear and just give a disclaimer. We haven't read this book and so I don't want to give people the impression that we have that, we, that we're offering a thorough review of the book ourselves. No, yeah, we're just talking about the ideas that this neurosurgeon captures in his review right. of the woman's book. But I will say the review has been compelling enough to us that we have already re- reserved this book at our library and we will be reading it soon. And I've reached out to a friend of ours who is an oncologist an oncologist who specializes in palliative care research and end of life care. And I've asked him if, if he would be willing to come on and talk about the book with us once we do read it. So hopefully he'll be willing to do that and we can have a more in-depth conversation about the book at a later date. Yeah, so this is just a preliminary <laughs> yeah. discussion of the ideas. Based on the review in the New York Times. So right. if you want to read the review, it's by Henry Marsh, as Sally said, a neurosurgeon. The author of the book is an oncologist. But the, the two obviously have interesting areas of intersection. Yeah, and in the book, she's asking really difficult questions about when the costs of cancer treatment outweigh the benefits. And it's not just about financial costs. It's financial and psychological and maybe most of all physical. And she talks about how, you know, existing chemotherapy treatments have, I think she uses the phrase, or maybe it's just his phrase from their view, but ghastly toxicities. Yeah, he's quoting her. And in, in you know, watching people in my life who have had cancer and gone through these treatments, I think that is a perfect summation of exactly what chemotherapy does. I mean, you're infusing poison all into your bloodstream to try to kill the bad stuff before the bad stuff can kill you. Um, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's a horrifying thing to watch somebody go through chemotherapy treatment. And I think this oncologist, I mean, I know this oncologist recognizes that and she's asking when is enough enough? When do we call a spade a spade? And this is obviously my paraphrase, recognize that we're all going to die anyway. And the best of our treatments in many cases can really only stave off death for a few weeks or a few months and it might not be worth it given all the pain and suffering that that it causes. Yeah, I think that's a big linchpin of her argument um, from what the reviewer is saying that chemotherapy actually fails a lot of the time. And it may it may work for a few months to give you a few more months of life, but ultimately often the cancer comes back and and for others they 
they don't even get any extra time at all. Their their bodies are just deteriorated even more and the cancer becomes untreatable and they just end up stopping the, the therapy. Yeah, I want to come back to that in just a second, but just a couple ideas that she talks about in this book. One of them is that there's no cure-all for cancer. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, uh, people would talk about how they wanted to grow up and become a doctor and cure cancer, cure as, cancer if, yeah. as if it's just a, a one-stop solution. And we're just waiting for one day when some lab researcher at Stanford or Harvard says, I have developed the cure for cancer, a universal panacea. But as this, as, as the neurosurgeon reviewer points out, and as um, she points out in the book itself, cancer is way more complicated than that. And it has an almost infinite number of mutations and therefore an infinite, infinite number of near infinite number of possible treatment options and ways to attack it and ways that it can attack us. So this, you know, we say cancer because cancer is a big umbrella term that describes the ways, you know, cells, um, I'm, I'm not an oncologist, but the way cells, yeah, I mean, divide, you know, badly and metastasize and, and take over, but that's not, one thing. There's a variety of different mechanisms and a variety of different mediums or media through which that can happen and a variety of sort of target systems. I mean, it's just, it's infinitely, almost infinitely complicated. And so she says it's arrogant of us to think that we're going to figure this out someday. And we need to have a little bit more humility in approaching this. And I think the natural next question, I don't know if she goes into this in depth in the book. I hope she does. And I look forward to finding out, but I think the natural next question is then what, right? Because if we look at cancer treatment as what it is, which is really just a way for us to sort of stave off death, what we really need to do is use cancer and its treatment as a way for us to prepare for death. Yeah. And she mentions that there's a big link between cancer and aging, and we don't really know the relationship between that. And that while the face of cancer is often the young, like a child or a young woman or something like that, actually the majority of cases are aging people already. Right. And I think when you, you can often give them false hope that you're going to add 20 years to the life of a 70 year old who's experiencing cancer when the best that they can hope for is a few more weeks or months. Yeah. Dr. Marsh, the reviewer who is a neurosurgeon says that he's, he's probably guilty of doing a few unnecessary surgeries because his patients wanted it and it might give them hope, but that's not a reason to do a surgery, especially not a reason to do a risky surgery. That's not what surgery is supposed to be for. And a doctor's job is not simply to give a patient false hope or to prolong a patient's life at all costs, but rather to prepare the patient, I think, for what the outcome is. I mean, think about someone who, I don't know, deals with glaucoma and they go to the ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist says, you have glaucoma and I can't stop it. I can slow it. But what I can do is help you prepare for being blind. And that's what a, an oncologist should do as well. And, I, and I'm sure many oncologists do this. I mean, I, I know they do because we have friends who are oncologists and one of them, like I said, specializes in palliative care. Um, so this is something that's already going on. I don't, I don't want to disparage the medical community unnecessarily, but it's important for all oncologists to recognize that the best I can do is going to be only partially successful in a best case scenario. So what I really need to do to take care of this patient is to take care of their soul in the sense that I can prepare them for a good death. Yeah, and I wonder if we as a culture have kind of built up in the minds of oncologists that they can accomplish more than they actually can. Because I guess it's either Henry Marsh, the reviewer, or the author, Raza, who's kind of told this joke about oncologists that they will, you know, to the to the bitter end, they will be trying to fight cancer even after their patient is already dead. Something right, like, yeah, that yeah. the joke? And, and I think it makes sense too because oncologists are, for the most part, brilliant people. You yeah. don't uh, you, you don't make it through four years of med school 
and then follow on internship and residency and in many cases fellowships without being a smart person. And I'm sure they go into it hoping that they can find this cure well, and I they think, never want to give up. Yeah, and I think most of them go into it, you know, especially the ones who work in clinical settings, they want to work with patients. Right. And so they, of course, want the best for patients. And I think they can often fall into the trap of what's best for this patient. It's 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 solving their cancer now. I right. need to get rid of the cancer that's afflicted them. So it's kind of, it's, it's the job of the oncologist to, to, uh, to have a better sense of their own limitations in order to communicate to the patient what their limitations are. And so it, it kind of starts with the oncologist realizing, okay, this is what's actually possible. And then being able to communicate that to the patient and not giving them false hope, which I, and I also know, I understand that a doctor, it's kind of the doctor's job to be a little bit more buoyant maybe than the patient is so that the patient doesn't give up too soon. But, but once, I mean, once the, the oncologist can, just recognize this is as far as I can go, then their job is to to help the to help the patient reconcile themselves to the outcome. Right. And this reminds me of the book we talked about in our book club a few years ago, uh, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. Right. And the importance of recognizing our mortality and preparing for our deaths because there's one thing that's common to all of us, and that's that we're all going to die, right? The two certainties of, I guess there are two two things that are common. We pay taxes and we die. So the two certainties in life, death and taxes, we're all going to die. And so we need to prepare for that. And, right. and hopefully our doctors can help us to live the life that we have well, instead of spending all this money, time and energy and physical well-being fighting something that's ultimately going to, we can't, we can't fight, we can't beat it. I know you wanted to talk about that language of beating cancer. Oh yeah, good point. I was actually completely forgot that I had mentioned that. Yeah, I was watching a football game the other day and one of the players, it was an amazing story. He had had cancer and is now in remission and was on the football field playing. And I think one of the announcers said that he had beaten cancer. And I hear that terminology a lot. Um, and I, I think it's problematic for a number of reasons, but, and I don't want to take away anything from cancer survivors who have gone through terrible suffering and come through the other end with a diagnosis of remission or no evidence of disease or whatever. That's amazing that they've gone through all that and they come out the other side. But it's not its not that they've beaten cancer. Well, it seems like that language is inaccurate in at least two ways. One is that they themselves haven't beaten it. Right. It's their doctors That's and their treatments. And two is that most likely they haven't beaten it. Well, I, I think there's a third problem, which is where I was going. And that's that for people who, you know, succumb to cancer, who die from cancer it does them a disservice to look at other people and say, this person beat cancer, like this they person failed. didn't. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have enough willpower. Exactly. I mean, each one of us are unique individuals and cancer, for those of us that it afflicts, it afflicts all of us differently. And so it's inaccurate to say this person beat it and this person didn't because it does a disservice to the people who don't. Oh, that's a very good point. But it's also, like you said, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it, yeah, the oncologists have a lot to do with it. And I don't want to downplay the importance of outlook. I mean, having a positive outlook and right. saying like, I'm going to beat this thing. Right. You want that, you want a cancer patient to have that attitude. It's, right. it's immensely important. But, but I sometimes just, no matter what your outlook is, it, you can still be conquered by the disease. Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, I think in, in a way, in a way we, you know, we, we often have this mentality of, you know, if this person is a cancer survivor, this person cheated death. Well, I mean, really all that happened is, you know, death wasn't cheated. Death is going to, to have its day in court, right? It will happen eventually to that person. It will happen to all of us. And so I think we need to be really careful about the terminology surrounding these issues, death and and things like like cancer that ultimately lead to our death. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I just think that uh, 
the term beating any sort of disease can be kind of like a euphemism for beating death. Right. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think it's interesting in this this book. This book obviously sounds a, um, I don't know if I, alarm is probably too strong a word, but it sounds a note of caution for sure in how we approach cancer and how we need to have humility in approaching how we deal with this and how we interact with it on a daily basis. Because as she says, you know, real, real progress in the way that we sort of talk about having a cure for cancer, that's going to require quantum leaps in other fields of, of sort of sub-study of oncology. And we're just not there yet. And we may never be. And so she says, we need to have humility about that. But that note of humility that she sounds in this book is markedly different from other things that you find elsewhere. So it was only two years ago, I think in 2017, that The Economist had an issue that was um, primarily devoted to this issue of cancer research. It was called, let me look this up here. Yeah, it was called Closing In on Cancer, New Therapies, New Priorities. And it sounded a very upbeat note about how we're making so much progress in the fight against cancer. And and sure enough, we are. I mean, um, I was talking to a friend who is an oncologist at the University of Chicago, and he was telling me about these new T-cell treatments where you can extract someone's blood cells retrain them to fight the cancer and then put them back in their bodies and they'll fight the cancer just as they fight the common cold. I mean, this is an crazy. incredible groundbreaking revolutionary stuff and yet people still die from cancer. Right. So, um, you know, there, I think, I think sort of having a healthy tension between those two that science and scientific progress is good and can ameliorate suffering and can get rid of ills, not, not get rid of, but can address ills like cancer. Well, at the same time, we're never going to be the you know, the captains of our fate as the the poem Invictus so wrongly declares. So I think having a, a healthy tension between those two is really important. And I think that feeds into the next two things yeah, we wanted to talk say, about. That's a good segue into the next two articles, which go together. Yeah. And these are about gene editing, which we've talked about before a lot on this podcast. Yeah. One is about a Russian scientist who is using gene editing to try to help deaf parents not give birth to deaf children. And the other article is about a new technique, kind of like a new version of CRISPR. We've talked about CRISPR on this show before. And this is a, a new and improved CRISPR called prime editing. Yeah. So apparently with CRISPR, people have compared it to scissors because what CRISPR does, forgive me, molecular bi biologists. Or like for... the search and replace <laughs> yeah, feature. Yeah. It's like you can search for a certain genetic mutation and then replace it or a, a, a genetic some sort of yeah. gene that is causing the problem. En encoded gene, yeah. And then replace it with a an edited gene. Although, and this is where we need a molecular biologist, I think that's actually more accurate to describe prime editing. So oh, I think that's, oh, okay. that, that analogy was definitely used for CRISPR because I remember reading that. But as I was reading in prime editing, the, the difference is that CRISPR is roughly like scissors because you have to cut the double the double strands of each side DNA. of the DNA helix and then replace the sequence that you want to replace. But with prime editing, it actually is more like a find than replace, um, mm. where they can actually go in precisely and replace lines of encoded DNA or encoded genetic material without actually cutting the helix. That's crazy. So it's more precise, theoretically at least. And because it's more precise, it offers more promise for things like that. And it's not reliant on the ability of cells that divide. To divide. So you can So there's a lot of diseases that, that involve cells that aren't dividing. Basically every... Um, neurological disease. Okay. Um, and so in Parkinson's or Huntington's or whatever. And so potentially, potentially you could use prime editing to deal with those. And this is, I mean, it, it caught my eye for a number of reasons, but one is I think when CRISPR first came out a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about this and everyone was 
excited about the prospects, but also wary of what it promised because, well, of a number of reasons. But one of the main ones that you just reminded me of, Sally, in, as we were preparing for this, was that people were concerned that it would be not precise enough and would have unintended consequences. Yeah. And I think at the time when we talked about it on the podcast, we theorized a future in which we would get so good at CRISPR that we wouldn't have the risk of unintended consequences. And even still, I think there are ethical concerns with how and when it is applied. And, and now I think we're, we're there. Like this is a more precise method of editing genetic material. And so it does eliminate some of those concerns about imprecision or, you know, mo- what is the mo- mosaicization? Um, and yet I still think there are con- some concerns and, you know, the world health organization is building a consortium to study these issues and provide some international guidelines but not everyone agrees. And that's kind of where the third article comes in. Right. So there's a Russian scientist who, as I mentioned, wants to wants to be able to edit the genes of embryos from deaf parents so that the, the babies will not be born deaf and that they will not be hearing impaired in any way. And on the note of hubris and humility, it seems like he is very confident in the advance of technology and confident in his ability to use that technology well. And um, I think that he is a great example. And the, I think the, the editors of this article are, it's, they seem to be aware of, of his overconfidence, but he's a great example of someone that I would be afraid of getting hold of something like prime editing and using it just to, to do what, you know, to, to, to care for patients. But to uh, just but doing it without regard for human humanness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely accurate. And I think it's interesting. So let me back up a little bit in 2000. I think it was November, 2018. There was a Chinese scientist whose name escapes me who basically came out and said, I've done it. I've, you know, modified genetic material of embryos using CRISPR and everyone, you know, gasped and was shocked that he would do this forging ahead without um, international approval and this led people to realize we really need to get going on this. And so the World Health Organization is standing up this commission to set up some guidelines, et cetera. But that was a scientist in China. And now we have this scientist in Russia who um, earlier this summer was trying to, um, in his words, or in the words of this article, at least create HIV resistant babies. I want to come back to that, that point about terminology. Um, but I do think it's interesting that one of the fears about genetic editing is that it could be used to used for wrong ends by authoritarian governments to create sort of superhumans. Um, so imagine like a imagine an army of genetically bred super soldiers, for example. And that might sound sci-fi-ish and um, very sort of fanfic and, and futuristic. But we've already started moving towards the direction of non-fatal conditions. I right. Think, I mean, HIV is a terrible disease. Deafness, not so much. Right. I mean, several years ago, there was controversy over deaf parents who wanted to create deaf babies right. because you there's there's such a culture surrounding it that you can live a very flourishing life even as a deaf person. And I know some have argued that you can lead a more flourishing life than otherwise. Right. So we just keep kind of moving the the goalpost and we're not sure how, where do we draw the line between a condition that is fatal or a condition that, that really does ruin your your life and a condition that is not that way and um they in this nature article they quote jennifer doudna who is a close friend 
of one of William the developers Herbert. of Cast Nine, yeah, right, and one of the close friends of William Herbert, who we have had on our show before. And she says that the project is recklessly opportunistic. This is speaking of the Russian scientists project, clearly unethical and damages the credibility of a technology that is intended to help not harm. And so she, she sees that this is problematic because hearing loss is not a fatal condition. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it was really telling coming back to that point about terminology. Well, and actually just to close the loop real quick on my Chinese scientist, Russian scientist point, one of the fears is these armies of super soldiers. And like you just pointed out, Sally, we're already moving the direction of sort of preferential um, preferential genetic material, I guess. Right. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, it's good that the world health organization is talking about making international guidelines, et cetera. But I think we're naive if we think that there are not going to be rogue scientists, probably in places like Russia and China, authoritarian systems that, uh, have historically shown a disregard for the human person who are going to go ahead and, and try to capitalize on these technologies and go ahead and, and sort of, um, prove them out over use cases that may be as absurd as as what he's trying to do now so well and he himself isn't really governed by any sort of principles he is very patient-led which again shows that he cares about his patients but he said it's up to the parents to decide when deafness is a concern and so if it's up to the parents to decide deafness then what what's to stop us from saying that parents can't decide other qualities that are not fatal right hair color eye color you know uh, uh, intelligence i mean that's a proneness towards maybe being overweight right yeah i i completely agree and i i thought it was very interesting too that in this article and it's not clear if this is the language of this russian researcher um dr rebrikov or if it's the language of simply the nature author or commentator but in this article, it repeatedly talks about creating or making babies, which is, um, I think it sort of, is, it says the quiet part out loud, you know, it gives the game away that these people are not simply talking about treating patients, but they're talking about um, assuming creative power and using that to make the people that they want to make. And I think that's a really, really dangerous idea. Yeah, this doesn't relate to the article, but I just used the, the terminology overweight and that just came out of my mouth. But what I really meant was people who decide that being in a larger body is a fatal condition that they want to change. And some people are in smaller bodies, some people are in larger bodies. And and I would hate to see an example of someone who wanted to use gene editing so that they're- I want petite children or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Yeah, well, I think um, one very telling thing about this Russian scientist who's forging ahead is in a small part of the article in which the nature writer includes an exchange between nature and Dr. Rebrikov. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there are there are good questions that they ask of him and he has not so good answers. So for example, there's one question that says a health ministry press release, that's a Russian health ministry press release, says that a 2012 decree on artificial reproductive technologies does not allow genetically modified embryos to be implanted. Does this change your plans? And, and no, he <laughs> says, laws are written to change them. As soon as we demonstrate the safety of technology, the rule will change. And this goes back to what we're saying about his lack of humility. So this is just the equivalent of the grade school kindergarten or grade, grade school playground rules are meant to be broken. Right. Um, and But my favorite, my favorite response of his to a legitimate question is, this, the question is posed to Dr. Rebrikov. The Russian health ministry issued a statement last week saying that it follows the position of the World Health Organization Committee. It is too soon to do such experiments. Will you try to apply anyway? And he responds, what does it mean too soon? 
Lenin, he's referring to Vladimir Lenin, <laughs> said, yesterday was too early. Tomorrow it will be too late. That's so, almost comical. It is. I mean, the irony of quoting Lenin uh, as a as a physician, who is, a biologist who is forging ahead with experiments that, in your own words, create or make babies with sort of designer preferences, that is terrifying. Is that putting too fine a point on it, Sally? No, I don't think so. I mean, he's even acknowledged some of the concerns about the technology and some of the possibilities for problems in it. And yet he's just willing to forge ahead. Luckily, he has uh, several hoops he has to jump through before he can actually be cleared to implement it. Now, we are working on a guest to bring on the show and talk about some of the specific things about applying genetic editing techniques, because I do want to say Sally and I are not against genetic editing. It can be therapeutic, but it needs to be applied carefully. And how we do it and when we do it really matters. And to talk more about that, I think is beyond the scope of this episode of the podcast, but we do want to bring on an expert soon to talk to us more about some of the general principles that should govern these conversations. All right. Well, I think that's all we can say for today then. I am looking at my notes and making sure I didn't miss anything. And yeah, I think we're good. Well, thank you so much for listening to Vernacular Podcast. Thank you once again to Will and Teresa for your support of our podcast on Patreon. We look forward to getting a review from the from you on those chocolate chip cookies that will be coming your way shortly. <laughs> I haven't made them yet. I'm just saying this out loud to um, you know remind myself that I need to do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if other people have read these articles, we'll link to them in the show notes. But if other people read them and have thoughts and they want to share them on the show, let us know. And if you liked this episode and are interested in us doing future bioethics updates where we just talk as two total lay people about what's happening in the latest news, then let us know. We can do this again. And reach out to us, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at vernacularpod. And I think that's it for today. So until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Oh,